0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. To win back the House of Representatives in the midterm elections, Democrats need 23 seats. And they're optimistic. President Trump's approval rating is around 41%, among the lowest of any modern president at this time in their first term. And the Democrats have a comfortable lead in generic congressional polls, reports The New York Times. Amy Walter covers politics for the Cook Political Report.
1: The first question, certainly, that I get asked, I'm sure a lot of you get asked is, okay, so who's going to win in 2018, right? Democrats going to take the House and the Senate,
0: what are the odds on this? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held in late June in Aspen, Colorado as part of the Aspen Ideas Festival. Midterm elections are often seen as the first nationwide referendum on a first-term president. Still, our panel argues a blue wave of victories is far from guaranteed. Critics see Democrats' efforts to be inclusive around race, gender, and immigration status as identity politics. To gain ground, Democrats need to fend off that critique. Ahead of the midterms, what are we hearing about the candidates, the campaigns, and the issues? What will the political environment look like in 2018 and 2020? Journalist Amy Walter, who you heard at the top of the show, leads our conversation. Joining her are pollster and political strategist Celinda Lake, Slate Chief Political Correspondent Jamel Bowie, Mike Allen of Politico, and Raham Salam, Executive Editor of National Review. Their conversation was held on June 25th. Here's Amy Walter.
1: If we were here at the end of the year, and the question were about, is there a blue wave coming, you'd say, well, at least I would have said... Gosh, it looks like the wave election. The president's at 38%. The congressional ballot, Democrats are up by double digits. The enthusiasm factor for Democrats is off the charts. They were winning in special elections that nobody thought they were going to win in, in places like Alabama. Uh, We hadn't had Pennsylvania special election, but they're outperforming traditional Democratic levels in these special elections. A Democrat was elected senator in Alabama, right? This looks like a really good year. Now we fast forward. It's The president's somewhere between 42 and 44% approval rating. The congressional ballot's about six. The enthusiasm advantage doesn't seem as big as it was last year. So is all this talk of a wave then, was it premature or do you think this could still be a big year for Democrats?
2: Well, I think that if you'd asked me in December, do we have a democratic wave, I would have said we have a democratic swell and we gotta push it into a wave. We gotta create the wave. And I think there are some ingredients for it. And I think we're missing some things. So some of the ingredients for it are the, uh, still, you have greater enthusiasm among Democrats. The Republicans are regaining enthusiasm, but greater enthusiasm among Democrats. You have um, independents leaning Democratic. You have um, a potential uh, 25 million rising American electorate voters who don't usually vote in off year elections. We won't get all 25 million of them out, but there's some real potential uh, to get portions of them out. Um, I think the uh, you have a very uh, determined, you have great recruitment. I mean, we got all kinds of candidates. Uh, you have women candidates who've had more success coming out of Democratic primaries than Republican primaries, and women do represent change. So there are a lot of things that are happening, but there are two things that, still make me cautious about the wave. One is um, that structurally, this is not a great environment. We have, uh, we need redistricting, we have lost a 1,000 state legislative seats, the Senate structure doesn't look good. So you have some structural problems. And then I think the um, single biggest problem that we have is lack of an economic message. And I would expand that to say lack of an economic and race narrative because I think, you know, the Democrats are a little bit divided. Um, Do we ignore race uh, or do we talk about it? And I would say ignore, we are in a racial conversation. So ignoring race is talking about it. It's just talking about it extremely ineffectively. Uh, So uh, I think we need to lean in. And we were part of a project uh, that the Demos group did with Anat Shanker and, Uh, in uh, Haney Lopez around race class narrative, which I would encourage everyone to go to the Demos website. I think it's some of the most important work I've been involved in in 20 years that talks about how to successfully engage in a race class narrative. But we gotta get ahead on the economy. And, um, And if you were asking me would we win 2020, I would say to you, Amy, on October 31st, tell me who's head on the economy.
1: I'll tell you who's going to be president of the United right. States. Well, right now, Republicans are ahead yeah. nine points on the economy. They are. Democrats are ahead 14 points on immigration, right? Uh, <laughs> well, so is this,
2: immigration. Right. We also had like 24 points on health care. Right. So
1: is that the better messaging then, is that Democrats really should be talking about health care and that uh, getting in an economic conversation is well, healthcare is, is our okay.
2: entree. Healthcare and education, which are the two issues we're ahead on, is an entree point into an economic debate. But I think we need to be talking about the economy, too. Uh, and we need to talk about what is going to produce good paying jobs for anybody in this country and anybody's kids in this country, whether you're white, black, or brown. Mm-hmm.
1: Jamel, there, I want to build on Selinda's point that there seems to be this debate within Democratic Party, and you've been writing a lot about this, too, about, okay, after 2016, is the Democratic <clears throat> message should be one that is tailored to winning back those white working-class voters that Hillary Clinton lost, or do we say those people are gone forever from the Democratic Party? We've got to focus on turning out young people, people of color who didn't show up in... Uh, in 2016 or is that basically a false argument yeah. I think mean, I think it's, I
3: think, it's a, I think the the race or economy thing is a, is a false choice but I think as far as what's happening on the ground right it doesn't see it my in my perception it doesn't seem as if Democrats are necessarily thinking that, thinking themselves of having to choose between the two instead of what's happening is that different candidates are kind of just tailoring themselves to whatever works best for their states or their districts and there's, there's not really any pushback on that. I mean, there's an extent to which the, the National Democratic Party hasn't quite settled on a message relating to race or the economy, although you see sort of left-leaning candidates like Kirsten Gillibrand, like, leaning into elements of both um, uh, candidates, like Bernie Sanders, obviously. I mean, Democratic candidates are, are, are taking their positions here. But as far as actual campaigns on the ground, what we've seen in special elections um, and in the Virginia kind of gubernatorial and, and House delegates elections is people are doing what, what seems to work best. So In Virginia, Ralph Northam um, didn't shy away from the debate over the Confederate monuments in, in, the, in the state. Um, and when Ed Gillespie, sort of the Republican candidate, sort of argued uh, or, or placed those at the center of the campaign, Northam immediately Hit him and said, "These aren't Virginia values." There's no. Sort of, it was sort of leaning into race by refu- not stepping away from the racial aspects of the conversation. Um, but then you look at a down ballot race in, in Virginia, and it's a conversation about transportation, right? It's whatever local issue is the problem there. Um, so, I, you know, there's. Uh, it seems to me that Democratic candidates themselves aren't aren't choosing, or if they are taking a position, everyone understands that it's like necessary. I mean, Connor Lamb was a good example of this, right? That Lamb um, uh, ran, in a lot of ways, it's sort of like an an almost old school, sort of like union Democrat, um, kind of silent on social issues, um, kind of implicitly conservative, like didn't really make a play of it, um, but heavy on social security and and union jobs and so on and so forth. Uh, And so I think, I mean, just empirically, I think you're you're seeing all of the above as far as the national conversation goes, I'm not even sure it's that important.
1: The national conversation about about about, about these two yeah, these debates, right. about whether we try to win these voters or right. try to win those by making a message. Um, Mike, you guys spend a lot of time covering the White House. Um, it seems to me that the decision by the president and those around him is we're gonna make the 2018 campaign look basically like the 2016 campaign. It will be smash mouth, polarizing, and it worked in 2016, so it's gonna be able to succeed in the next election. Is that the sense that you're getting there? Amy,
4: I never quarrel with you, but I'm gonna quarrel with one word that you just used. In relation to this White House, use the word decision. (laughs) I think we're gonna have to uh, uh, amend the record on that. (laughs) But everything else he said, I agree. So first, a. Uh, sidebar on Ed Gillespie because, uh, Celinda and Amy, you've known Eddie a long time in the Virginia race when toward we live in Virginia, and uh, toward the end of the race, when Ed Gillespie's TV cam uh, commercials were about MS 13, oh, yeah. yeah, I was like, okay, he's losing, yeah, like yeah. that ain't him. <laughs> um, and so, uh, in this age of authenticity, right, uh, like that definitely wasn't gonna work for him, but okay, so the White House decisions. So, uh, we've had a long running debate at Axios, and by the way, I wanna thank my Axios colleague, Ina Fried, our chief technology correspondent, for being here, but we've had a long running uh, debate about how much of the Trump phenomenon is method, and how much is madness. <laughs> and, madness is definitely winning, <laughs> um,
2: so. I actually think method is winning.
4: But the, but the method is, Instinct, And that's where mm-hmm. Amy's right, is that what he's doing is working for him. And we have a piece at the top of Axios today about the fact that however cynical you might want to think the Trump approach is, like the numbers at the moment are working for him. So for a long time, I thought, we look ahead to 2020, Trump has a math problem. And Amy, this is your right. fort is my grandmother would say that, that the most surprising thing about the Trump presidency, it's 530 some days now, the most surprising thing, if you look at his history, if you look at his instincts, is that he has done nothing for the 54% of people who didn't vote for him, right? If you look at his history, he's a Democrat, right? Like he's a deal maker. he's a schmoozer, right? If you look at where how he got where he is, he was well-positioned to... Bring Schumer in and like he looked powerful on inauguration day. People wanted to make deals with him. And then they led with the Muslim ban. And never again can any Democrat make a deal with him, right? Like if you are a Democrat who think you have any future in party politics, like you now can't make a deal with Trump. So now he's really painted himself into a corner. He barely won in the states where he needed to win. And he's not adding people. And so he needs every last one of his people. Now, one way that I thought he'd gotten off the mat a little bit as I travel around the country, and I think one thing that we all learned in 2016 was that like we need to be out there more. So I was in Indianapolis a couple weeks ago. I was in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago. And what I hear from Hillary voter business people is they like the tax cut. Right and they like regulations, right? Right. And so I thought, ah, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's solving his math problem. But I think that this thing with the kids changes that. Like, like they think, to the degree they make decisions, they think everything is just uh, a beer can over Niagara Falls. Like, everything (laughs) will go away. That everything is Uh, Just in a moment, and we can put out another shiny object, and it'll go away. I don't think that's true with the kids Like it's gonna take months to unravel what's done, and I think this is one time that our attention span will not be short
1: Okay, Uh, let me ask you. Did you think that Charlottesville was that tipping point? Or Access Hollywood Touché. with that tipping point. Touché. I mean, I do, I, yeah. I don't mean that as a, but, but I just don't, I feel like. No, and, you're right. And, and, and I hears, think
2: the kids are already receding respectfully. I mean, I
1: don't wish it were true. I wish it were not true, but I think the kids are already receding. As an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Raihan, I know you, I would like to talk to you both about immigration, but first about this idea about, is it working or not working? Which is, well, it, I, um, I am 100% with, Mike, that he has decided that he's gonna be the 44% president and I'm gonna get as much done as I can. Um, what has happened though, which surprised me, and I'm curious if it surprised you, is that there has been zero defection from Republican voters. I really did think the party would be much more divided um, during his presidency. He has a higher approval rating among Republicans now than George W. Bush had mm-hmm. at this point in his presidency. So is this now, this is what the, the Republican Party has become, the Trump Party? Or were they always this way, looking for somebody like Trump?
5: You have literally the best journalists. You have a wonderful pollster up on the stage. I, I am not someone who is as plugged in, nearly as plugged in as they are into the kind of day-to-day news cycle. Yeah. What I will say, however, is that in 2008, I co-authored a book with uh, a friend of mine, Ross Douthat, called Grand New Party. And the argument we made in that book is that the Republican Party, the elite of the Republican Party, was very much out of touch with the base of the Republican Party as the base of the Republican Party was changing. We argued that a Republican Party that would be durably successful, that would durably win elections, would be a party that was more economically populist and as a cultural message would offer a unifying nationalism that would take concerns about immigration seriously and that would also really talk about integration, amalgamation, how do we incorporate uh, folks who are now you know, part of the marginal working class, people who are really marginalized in our society, how do you bring them in to a broad, pan-ethnic, working class, middle class? Um, and this argument was not taken terribly seriously at the time, but our argument was, look, you know, there are all kinds of incentives at the elite level To not do this, politicians are very, very risk averse. They are not going to pursue a course unless there is a precedent for that course, right? So you know, we were out there saying this. Hey, you know, you know, people said we were really clever. We were patted on the head, all of this stuff. But of course, no one had any reason to actually do this. Why? Because when you actually saw Republican presidential campaigns when you actually saw people try to offer some kind of populist challenge, some kind of new ideological synthesis, they always lost. Now, what would happen is that you would have someone like a Mike Huckabee trying to kind of say, okay, I'm gonna be a different kind of candidate. I'm gonna be a bit more populist. But he wound up appearing to be a sectarian, southern, evangelical candidate who never really broke out of that lane. If you look at Rick Santorum, you know, this is not the most charismatic guy in the world, but he was trying to offer a kind of rust belt friendly, uh, you know, kind of industrial policy friendly, working family friendly message, and he actually did remarkably well for someone who had no money on his side, right? So then Donald Trump comes along, and Donald Trump does not need money He has free media. He has the equivalent of billions of dollars of free media. And by the way, most of that coverage is in fact pretty hostile. Not all of it, obviously, but a lot of it. But regardless, he was able to get around the gatekeepers within the Republican Party. And what he did is he set a precedent. So then look at Indiana. You have a candidate like Mike Brown, maybe he's gonna lose, but he is a very interesting Senate candidate in Indiana because he was a Democrat. You know, he's a guy who talks about industrial policy, talks about trade, you know, he's pro-life, he's a social conservative, but those aren't really the core components of his message. So it's really interesting to see this kind of rust belt populist component of the party, this swing state republicanism that wasn't there before. But This is a panel about Democrats. And one thing I wanna really drive home about Democrats is that this shift in the Republican Party would not have happened without a shift in the Democratic Party. That's something that people tend to neglect. Both parties, as their coalitions change, as they grow, as they shrink, they necessarily affect the rival party's coalition. So in 2008, Hillary Clinton's near victory, her near majority coalition among Democrats, was very heavily composed of working class, lower middle class white voters. Those voters by 2016, those were not the core of Hillary Clinton's constituency. Over that intervening period of time, those voters came unmoored, they came loose. Now, some of them were people who had voted Republican in other elections before, et cetera, but the last vestiges of their Democratic identity were unloosed. Now, here's another thing. Think about Europe's center-left social democratic parties. All of these parties are moving to the right on immigration. That is not happening in the United States. Why is that? One explanation is that in Europe, you've gotta have those working class white votes. In the United States, there is a belief, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, that you've transcended that, you moved into a different world, and that it's not strictly necessary. That There is a new rainbow working class that you can rely on to be the basis of your majority. So you see this big cleavage, uh, and it's not inevitable for a center-left party to do that. But this Democratic Party, you know, $80 million is going to be spent by Michael Bloomberg in swing districts around the country. Silicon Valley is a big part of the donor base of this party with its distinctive sensibilities. So I think that that's
4: a really big part of the Democratic story going forward. Excuse me, just given the thesis of your book, I want to say that I'm going to Vegas with you and Ross. (laughs) Right. Yeah, ex- expect Except to win like ten years later, but yeah.
3: But that that is. <laughs> but just just I mean, yep. j- just on that real quick. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's worth saying that Donald Trump didn't necessarily follow that strategy exactly, right? Like it was it was it was the economic populism tied to like a reactionary race message that is not pre- that that's you 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 and Ross were looking for, uh, trying to bring together socially conservative blacks, socially conservative Latino, sort of like a tr- like almost traditionalist coalition that cuts across racial lines. And, and Trump has re- really taken the opposite approach. And so, I mean, the, both both in the change of the Republican Party, the way this Rust Belt conservatism has manifested, the change in the Democratic Party, like race is is, is is a major story and reactions in various ways to the, the racial status quo, of the Obama years, I think also is playing a part in, in, the, in the changing parties. Not simply in terms of backlash, but in terms of how the racial coalition within the Democratic
4: Party itself has changed since 2008.
5: I'd love like to respond, yes.
4: but I'll, uh, of course Mike can go first. Uh, no, just uh, real quick. If you went onto the YouTube channels of, and it's kind of sad, I guess Amy and I are the only people that do this, but right. if you were to go onto the YouTube channels of the 2016 Republican candidates, and you were to listen to their ads, there was an ad that Contained the like, secret to the election. There was an ad very early on that said, you look around and you don't recognize your neighborhood. And that ad was by Marco Rubio. So his consultants, his ad makers, his pollsters like, saw what was out there. Yep. Trump acted on it.
5: Oh, just very briefly, uh, Jamel is very, very astute. I mean, so basically what we want to do is head off right. the idea right. of intensifying ethnic divisions with this different kind of politics. Right.
1: You can't head it off. It's already there.
5: But right. one right. thing to keep in mind is this. So Donald Trump, if you had had another Republican candidate get through the money primary who ran as a mildly protectionist, uh, immigration restrictionist, being very careful to say to second generation Hispanics, to kind of uh, hardworking immigrants, look, you know, kind of we value your contributions, things that Donald Trump, that was like the one in 30 things he said about immigration, right? right? And some he of them said that good that person would have won the general election running away against Hillary Clinton. That person would have won decisively. There's this idea that Donald Trump was uniquely positioned to run on this message I think he was uniquely positioned to overcome the resistance within the Republican Party to a more populist message, but he was not the only candidate. And that version of the pitch was not, in my view, the only version that would have resonated with Republican voters.
0: Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. We strive to bring you a variety of topics from the stages of the Aspen Institute. Our podcast episodes have covered race, politics, and world affairs, but also love, health, and happiness. Look through our archive on your favorite podcast player. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, NPR One, and many others. With our wide selection of shows, you'll be sure to find the topic you're most in the mood for. Now back to today's featured discussion, Amy Walter.
1: I'm going to move us away from this topic for a moment to drill down on the midterm election for a second. And um, Selena, I'm going to start with you and talking about the role that Trump plays in this election. It is impossible to get... We can't even go five minutes on this panel without his name coming up. You can't go anywhere, it seems, in this country without his name coming up. The question about the role that Trump should or should not play in democratic messaging, and I'm gonna to get to Jamel too because he wrote something about this, but I wanna hear yeah. you, as, as you're talking to candidates, what advice do you give to them about how central to make him?
2: Okay, so the advi- there are a bunch of things I would say. First of all, uh, well, three things I would say. First of all, if you need to get out democratic votes, then there's nothing like sprinkling a little Trump dust over whatever <laughs> you say. I mean, if you wanna say the moon is coming out at 8.30 tomorrow night and Donald Trump that's all you need to say. <laughs> Democrats are out there like, okay, how do I get to vote against the moon? I'm, I'm there. Although it's a little bit like, um, you know, it's a little bit addictive, right? Because what you can't get people out with nothing right. and it substitutes for having an alternative and we need an alternative. If you wanna get persuade uh, persuasion voters, then um, I think, it depends on the district, it depends, do you just need to get some lazy Dems or do right. you need to get independence? Right. Then it's actually better right now to run against the Republicans in Congress than it is against Donald Trump for a couple of reasons. People think Donald Trump is getting stuff done. People also think he's not on the ballot. People think that Republicans in Congress are getting nothing done, and they have all the worst policies, um, and they've gone Washington and they're not a check on Trump. And so it just goes on and on and on, and they're completely out of touch. Um, So it's better to run against Republicans in Congress. People also, I mean, it tests pretty well to say that, you uh, have your, your member votes 98% with Donald Trump because right. people wonder how the hell can anybody vote 98% with this person? But there's not gonna be any ads at the end morphing you, know, uh, you into Donald Trump right. because people think, forget it. The, Donald Trump doesn't even like the Republicans. The Republicans, some of them don't even like him. There's nobody like Donald Trump, forget it. It does work to say they have Donald Trump's agenda but you have to add something else on. The way we won all those seats in Virginia, and a partner in our firm, Josh Ulibarri, did those races, We had to add a little secret sauce. We had to add something about the Republican. It couldn't just be the Donald Trump agenda. So I think you have to, it depends on what you need to get done, but Donald Trump is, um, well, we were talking before, Donald Trump is like nitroglycerin. And we have a saying in Montana where I come from, gold miners use nitroglycerin and there's a
1: reason they don't have all their fingers.
2: Uh, And that's, uh, we Democrats have to be careful (laughs) to keep all our fingers
1: intact. Um, But Jamel, you wrote, uh, I guess this was a few weeks ago uh, because there was a debate that uh, among them within the Beltway among Dem strategists about we got to talk about issues, don't talk about Trump. So talk about the economy, talk about healthcare. Uh, you made the case that no, you got to make Donald Trump and his corruption and profound mismanagement a central part of the message. So it's not enough to just say healthcare, economy. You also have to say this. Everything about who he is
3: and his system is the problem. It's funny because I don't. Maybe it's the case that all you you don't have to talk about Trump at all, and you can still win. Like I don't. I don't really know either way. But I think, aside from the question of winning or not, there's also like kind of quasi-independent political goals. Like, do, mm. do Democrats want to build momentum uh, for investigations into the Trump administration should they win control of one or both chambers of Congress? There are all, all these relate questions like that that do sort of necessitate a message about Trump. Um, and so what I argued was that there's, there's that, there's the fact that people are talking about Trump. I mean, he is, it's right. He's- it's just, that's just what people talk about. And it seems strange <laughs> It seems very strange to me to look at the thing that everyone's talking about, that everyone has an opinion about, that you know is dividing the country in this major way, and say we're not going to talk about that.
2: Well, plus he's an asset
3: for Democrats, right? Right. I mean, I,
2: it depends. It, we it, want it, a lot of districts that we got to go get.
3: I think it likely does depend on the district, but in terms of national Democratic messaging. Um, I think it's important for Democrats to have a message about the president and to emphasize the things about the president they find most objectionable. Um, and it seems that corruption is among those things. And So that's, that's the path they should take. Um, if nothing else, because that's what people are thinking about, people are talking about, the White House is already putting out a message that the investigations are witch hunts, that all of this is bunk, that you should ignore it. And in the absence of any countervailing message, I think that ends up, influencing the public at large. And so for Democrats thinking, thinking not just in terms of how can we win, but what do we wanna do after we win, it's, good. it's necessary.
2: I think Jamal made a very important distinction. I'd like to make that distinction. You know, if I'm just trying to win a race, and I'm just gonna get Amy elected to Congress here, which would, Amy for president would be wonderful. I wanna sign all this stuff <laughs> for that right away. Um, but uh, I wouldn't run corruption. It tests at the bottom of the list, when we've tested every which way to Sunday. If we want to lay the groundwork for curtailing this presidency, what we really believe for democracy—let's just theoretically say we cared a little bit about (laughs) democracy—then you're right. You know, so this is a tension. I think. How do we get these? And five months out from an election, it's getting really tense because we got to go win these seats, and these seats are in a lot of bad places, tough places for us. On the other hand, we stand for something, and we have to position, we have to maintain democracy here.
1: So I think it's a real there's a lot of tension. Which makes the point that Democrats seem to have lost the messaging on the issues of the Mueller investigation, et cetera, which is it's a witch hunt and the Democrats
3: response is what what is it? it? It's, it, it's, it's n- sort of n-uh. non-existent. It's <laughs> no it isn't. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah there's no I mean there, it doesn't connect to a narrative, right? That's right. There's no and narrative talk- about Donald Tr- Donald Trump that I think national Democrats are really trying to sell that kind of connects him connects him to is policies that Democrats argue are unpopular. Um, uh, Two sort of cultural critiques of Trump. There's no attempt to do this. And so I, I understand why. Yeah. Like I, I understand that there's a, a strong belief that voters want to hear about issues, and I think that's probably the case. I don't think it's a coincidence that Ralph Northam in Virginia and Doug Jones in Alabama were like boring dudes, right? <laughs> who, who talked to, I mean, Ralph Northam's ads were like, I just want to give you childcare. Um,
2: <laughs> I think child
3: health care. <laughs> I think that appeals to people, um rightfully so and I'm not 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 sort of making light of child care issues. Right. Um trust me on that uh for personal reasons. uh, uh but but
2: Part of the problem is we mix everything up. I mean, I think you're you're right. We we don't really have a good narrative on this. So what do we add? We add everything that bothers us, but don't bother voters. So we'll do the Mueller stuff, which is very serious. And you know, I grew up in the era where, I mean, if you'd said the Soviets were interfering with our elections, good Lord. On the other hand, we mix it up with, he didn't pay his taxes. Well, you know what, and we had, we had I had a voter scream at me in a focus group and say, you know what, we, he's a rich guy, we know he didn't pay any taxes, move on. Uh, and so all rich guys don't pay taxes. So move on. Uh, so we mix it all up, and then we go to impeachment, and people don't want chaos. Trump already introduces too much chaos. So we don't have a really good right. narrative, and that, in, that, does, and so we just throw in the bucket whatever you know gravels, whichever one of us you're talking to
3: at the particular moment. One, one, one quick thing I, I just want to say is that for all this talk about message, I think it's important to recognize how so much of the energy on the Democratic side is on the grassroots level, yeah. is among um, voters who may not have been terribly involved right. a cycle ago or two cycles right. ago, but have been energized have been activated by, um, by the election of the president and, and events subsequently. And I feel like looking back at 2016, one mistake I made was not taking seriously the odd things I was seeing on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. And I think here as well, there is stuff happening on the ground that I'm not really sure we can quite pick up in our polling or or perceive. so
1: just just counting on the president's overall approval rating or congressional ballot may be missing. Right, Right. that's a good
5: point. So I'm from uh, New York. born and raised in Brooklyn. And I've seen a lot of really interesting primary campaigns in the outer boroughs of New York. There are three in particular. You have young, very progressive candidates of color. They are running on abolishing Immigration and Customs Enforcement. They are running on Medicare for All and much else, a very ambitious agenda. And they are running against um, very long-term Democratic congressional incumbents. And that's one thing you see in Democratic politics that's emerging. As the coalition of the democratic, uh, excuse me, as the composition of the democratic coalition changes, you're seeing these new uh, pressures, you're seeing these new ideas emerge and, and being taken seriously. On the other hand, New York State is governed by a Democrat, a very shrewd Democrat who has been involved in Democratic politics his entire life. His name is Andrew Cuomo. And Celinda was talking earlier on about how Democrats need to have an economic policy message. They need to have a message about the tax cut. And Andrew Cuomo does indeed have a message about the tax cut. His message is that upper middle income and wealthy New Yorkers pay taxes that are way too high, and so now he is pushing for tax reform at the level of New York State that will actually leave the taxes of the richest New Yorkers lower than they were before this federal tax legislation was passed. In fact, you actually have a couple of major Republican donors who are saying we are not donating to the Republican Party. These are folks who live in New York and other high tax states who are saying that, hey, you know, we're a bit burned by what happened with this tax law. But it's kind of interesting. Andrew Cuomo is a very shrewd guy and he, you know, again, New York State could do lots of things. New York State could say, Donald Trump cannot be on the ballot to run for president in 2020 unless he releases his tax returns. It's an idea that is taken seriously by a lot of folks in the progressive world, but that's not the legislation he's pushing. He's pushing this major tax break. He also has fought tooth and nail against a measure that would slightly, slightly, slightly raise taxes on rich people in New York City to finance childcare. Programs. That is really interesting. Now, it's possible that Andrew Cuomo is a fool. It's also possible that Andrew Cuomo understands that the Democratic Party right now is a barbell party. And actually, the upper middle class voters in that party have influence and weight in that party way out of proportion to their numbers. And that's going to be really interesting to see if the folks, these young progressive candidates of color, if they wind up actually having voice in this machine, or if they're going to get assimilated into it as they themselves are upwardly mobile, or rather, you know, they, the candidates themselves, are upwardly mobile. Let's not speak of their constituencies. And that's going to be really interesting.
1: Yeah, that's a great, that's a very good point. Um, I mean, we could spend hours just talking about the coalitions of these two parties and where they go from here and how stable they are. Um, Mike, before we move on to 2020 and then we're gonna move to questions, tell me what you think would happen. Uh, It's 2019, Democrats uh, have taken control of the House. The president reacts by doing what?
4: Do we agree that uh, if that's true, uh, they have a very narrow majority? It's not a working majority. It's a bare numerical majority. So when did you buy that idea?
2: Uh, I'm not sure it's not a, a working majority because I think it's gonna be a very progressive majority. I don't think we're gonna have we're not gonna have a lot of blue dog defectors and stuff. I mean, Connor Lamb was actually running pretty progressive, <coughs> pro-choice, et cetera. He didn't run with a scarlet A on his forehead, but um so I think we, I don't know what you mean by working. Do I think it's only gonna be, it's most likely to be a few seats, not a huge number of seats? Yeah, because we gotta make up quite a few. So the answer,
4: the answer is the president is gonna do the exact same thing that he would do if it were Republicans. And that is that he's looking ahead to 2020. He's thinking about himself. There is very little scenario where, whether it's a bare Republican majority, or a bare Democratic majority, where he's gonna be able to do anything notable. We're seeing him, a little spoiler alert, this is gonna be the lead of Axios AM. Uh, Tomorrow we're seeing him already uh, looking overseas for what his next accomplishments are. And so he's gonna run against Democrats in Congress, he's gonna run against Republicans in Congress. The big difference is not what he says or does, but what they can do. And then we need one more to be able to investigate, to be able to have subpoenas, right. to be able to make his life hell. Right, does,
1: does he understand and appreciate how miserable his life could be if Democrats have a subpoena power? He does not. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, so there's that. There's also talk that perhaps we will see that Donald Trump that you had outlined earlier, the deal maker, the schmoozer, that if he sees, and let's say there really is a big wave and Democrats actually take the Senate as well, that he's going to go and cut deals. And this is how you get immigration done. This is how we're going to get infrastructure done. I'm going to get Chuck and Nancy, if Nancy's indeed the speaker. We don't have time for all of that right now. But um, whoever it is, do you think he does that or he sees it's? He is just kind of done with Congress, right? This is, I want to do everything by executive fiat. This Congress thing just is miserable.
4: No, sure, he would do that. Like, I don't know that they would or could, but the important thing to remember is he wakes up every morning and thinks of today as an episode in his reality show. And what will the conflict be? How can he be the hero? And like when you're starting with a blank slate every day, sure, like... He loves the idea of doing the deals mainly because he loves the coverage that results from it. Um, But, like others here, can say what the likelihood is that they would be able to do the deal back. Right. Right.
0: This week, we dropped our first set of interviews in a new series we're calling Offstage. The intimate one-on-one talks happen in the studio, not on our stages. Listen as New York Times contributing op-ed writer Wajahat Ali interviews Aspen Ideas Festival presenters about activism. Gabby Pacheco fights for immigrants' rights. She spearheaded efforts that led to DACA, or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. She says the pace of change can be frustrating. Something that um, I've had to quickly learn is that change is painfully slow, and it'll be a roller coaster ride. We will have big wins like DACA, and then we will have big loses like having the Trump administration end the program. Find the episode, Offstage 2, Fighting for Immigrants, in the Aspen Ideas to Go lineup on your favorite podcast app. There's also a link in our show notes. Back to today's show. Here's Amy Walter.
1: All right, I want to make sure that we leave enough time for some questions. If anybody has one right now that they want to to do, okay, right in the back.
6: Yeah, uh, name the leadership, literally, please name the leadership of the Democratic Party And tell us why we don't have a cohesive, direct, appealing message.
3: So I feel like I have disappointing news in this regards. there is no—it's there is no singular Democratic yes, Party yeah, linger, leader. I mean, true. there there are there are people who lead yeah, particularly large factions. Bernie yeah. Sanders has a large faction at his hand. Joe Biden is sort of like you know representative of uh, uh, the Obama uh, coalition, the Obama moment. But as far as sort of singular leadership, I don't think it exists. And I, I I'm hard pressed to think of a period in party politics period. Um, where you had a party out of power that had that Correct. kind of singular leadership. Yeah, it's just right. not it a just, thing. It
1: just, it does, it just doesn't, doesn't it happen. Does. The thing yeah. about
3: losing a presidential election is that it clears the field for leadership battles. So right. what we're what we're witnessing right. is all this jockeying among, among Democrats to whom is going to lead the that's party right. uh, in 2020. Exactly and so right. my, my unfortunate answer if you're looking for someone to say this is the leader of the Democratic Party is that you could, we're gonna just have to wait and see because right. um, this is what that period yeah, is. Yeah, and
1: that's that's right. We don't. This yeah, is not like right. a parliamentary system. We don't have an opposition leader, uh, as you uh, you know, with your um, prime minister. And midterm elections, especially when, when you're the out party, they are a referendum on the party in power. Period. It is not about you, out of power. It's about the people who are in power. And each individual campaign, as we've discussed, has a different uh, message on what they would do. Individual in their district, in their state. But once you get a presidential candidate and that's right. the next question right. is who is that president who is that democrat that you want to see as president what is the message that you want them to be putting forward as president and you're going to have about 7000 candidates coming and telling you what their message and their vision is and that's a bigger challenge
4: yes selinda so when you're doing your testing right now there's this thing of when they go low, we're supposed to go high, but should we? And is Maxine Waters doing us damage or not? What are the things that test best to get us ahead and to convince other people that we have a fascist in power?
2: That's complicated, right? Because that suggests that we're going to use the 2018 elections to run after Donald Trump and I've actually made the argument that we should use the 2018 elections to take back the House and get governorships and get ourselves in, in position for redistricting because I don't think trying to beat Trump is gonna be successful and uh, we won't get as many seats as we need if all we try to do is beat Trump. Um, I think the things that are working for us, we have a very strong healthcare message um, and, and our party is more united than it has ever been and the public is more with us than it has ever been in that healthcare is a right, healthcare for all. Let's uh, be expansive in terms of healthcare. And elections matter. I mean, you can talk about Milk Toast Northrop. 400,000 Virginians have healthcare today who didn't have it. Elections matter for real people's lives. And we, as Democrats and progressives, and maybe there are some people in the audience who aren't Democrats and progressives, but uh, for those of us who are Democrats and progressives, we want to make sure that when we take back power, it makes a difference in real. People's lives. Um, we have we're for strong public schools. And look at the teachers who are walking out on strikes, and they're not walking out on strikes in the middle of Manhattan. They're walking out in strikes in Oklahoma City. They're walking out in rural West Virginia. They're walking out in rural Arizona. And the voters are supporting them in that walkout. Even as they have no child care, they're supporting them because they think that teachers ought to be supported and classrooms uh, size ought to be smaller. And i just I firmly believe that the most, and u s. donors, can really reinforce this. We need an economic message and I, we need to, we cannot get by just with a couple of issue statements. We really need an economic message and you must push our candidates to have an economic perspective. And look at the Aspen ideas. I mean, there's lots of creative ideas. Like we work for Aspen with Ann Mosley, et cetera, on the two generation approach to poverty. That is wildly popular with the public. Uh, we have the ingredients for an economic message and for whatever reason, we goddamn won't build, you know, bake this cake. <coughs> Force the Democratic candidates that you deal with to bake the cake. And if they come to you and give you a spiel and it doesn't have an economic component, say that to them and say, what is your economic
1: component? I'm gonna go over there. This man has been jumping out of his chair.
6: I sometimes feel like the Democrats are bringing a knife to a gunfight. Because we talk about values, and we talk about uh, the issues that have been discussed tonight, and I believe in them with all of my heart. And yet, what it seems to me, with all of my right-wing friends in Arizona, that they are passionate. They wanted Barack Obama to be assassinated or murdered, and the person who did that would be their hero. Democrats, with everything that Trump has done, want him to be impeached. They want him no longer to be president anymore, but we don't have the passion and we're not willing to declare war in the same way that the other side is. Now, to the extent that we go down into the swamp and fight that fight, maybe we've lost everything that we stand for. But at the end of the day, if it's about winning, can we do anything less? That's my question
5: respectfully, and I know this is not a question for me, but to folks on the right, the notion that Democrats are not on a war footing seems totally delusional and disconnected from reality. Uh, So, I mean, I think that there is absolutely a sense of real fervor, especially among upper middle class folks, especially among more affluent folks, but of course there are lots of working class folks who are very angry too, the sense that we are in some kind of war. Uh, I read serious people in serious publications talking about, you know, first step is we're going to deny I bar people from restaurants. The next step is gonna be fire bombings. So, I mean, again, these are fringes, just like your right-wing friends sound like they're pretty fringy people too. Uh, but <laughs> I, I think that there absolutely, there absolutely is uh, a kind of sense of genuine righteous anger that is very much out there and is definitely being heard. And it's not just being heard by fellow Democrats.
2: I mean, let's not be the Rodney Dangerfield here of uh, political parties, right? We are ahead. Now we gotta work hard to get further ahead and the stakes are really high. Our voters are more energized than ours. The turnout has been higher. I would maintain we have better candidates. We are doing much better with women voters. Let's keep married women from not voting the same way as their husbands, by the way. A major strategic need that we have. Uh, Let's get our vote out. Let's get our message out. I mean, we are, we are angry, and but uh, we can be angry and railing. And you know, I personally don't like the idea of denying people uh, access to dinner at a restaurant uh, because we sure as heck we would be furious if that happened to someone who was gay, for example. Um, you know, I might I might not, not want to sit next to that table. I might ask to be moved to another table. But um, you know, we do stand for something. And let's and the public wants solutions to real problems that they're facing. So let's get our agenda out, let's get our vote out, and let's go win these races. Jamil, yeah. well, did you have something to, like to
3: say? I, I, I think to the extent that I have anything to say, it's that, it's, I think it's important as an observer of politics to not confuse sort of like narrative with what is happening on the ground. Maybe mm. maybe sort of Democrats on cable television and, and national media um, don't have the fire in the belly. But as soon as you start looking at grassroots groups, um, Democrat, local Democrats, Democrats on the ground, it's beyond, uh, beyond clear that there is tremendous enthusiasm um, uh, bordering on, like Raihan said, almost a war footing. Um, uh, that is very much the case, even if you don't see it reflected in sort of the media landscape. This gentleman right up front. I also went to
5: the uh, uh, Never Trumper session, which was in a smaller room. And uh, Charlie Sykes said it was a small band of brothers. Uh, and I wonder whether there's any scenario in which there is a coalition of, of, of Democrats with the never-Trumpers, uh, with the Charlie Sykes and Steve Schmidt and Nicole Wallace and Anna Navarro, or whether the, the gravity of the Bernie side of the party just pulls the party farther left. What does the party itself and its policies look like in not just this fall, but in 2020, uh, given that there are people who from the other side are so dissatisfied.
1: Yeah, and can I add to so this is a question I wanted to ask you all, so I'll, I'll piggyback it onto your question of the kind of Democrat that can win the 2020 election, is it gonna look somebody like, somebody, uh, like Andrew Cuomo, who's gonna be the, well, I'm gonna be um, kinda coming from the center, uh, in a, a more moderate voice on those issues, is that possible to get somebody through there, or is the person who wins the 2020 Democratic nomination going to have to be so far to the left that they are going to be an underdog in the 2020 general election?
2: Well, I think that, um, I guess I don't buy the premise that the left is an unviable philosophy. I mean, 10 years ago, um, you know, we won't elect anybody in our party who is not for health care for all. Uh, But so 67% of the public is for health care for all. We may disagree about how to get there. We won't won't nominate anybody who doesn't want to take on the pharmaceutical corporations. Well, 80% of the public wants to take on the pharmaceutical corporations. We won't nominate anybody who's not for legalizing pot. Two-thirds of Americans want to legalize pot and we're in a state right now and I don't see a problem with legalized pot and a lot of money for education because of it. We won't nominate anybody who's anti-choice or who is uh, against marriage equality. Well, guess what? The public wants to leave Roe v. Wade in place and let people marry who they love. So, you know, I don't buy that uh, progressive philosophy is not viable.
3: Mike, you were gonna say something. I'm
4: not sure I have, have
2: anything on
3: this <laughs> I, I'd no, like right. wind, well, I'm going to weigh
4: too. I'm gonna go a third way, and I'm gonna say that the successful candidate against Trump is not somebody who's gonna go head on it. And the successful candidate taking the David Axelrod message that uh, the most important thing when you run for president is to be comfortable in your own skin. going could be somebody who can needle Trump, who can get under his skin, he can go after him, somebody like Biden-ish, but definitely somebody like Terry McAuliffe.
3: So I don't, so okay,
0: now I have, now,
3: I
4: have now, my, you know. my thoughts have collected.
3: Um, so I think, on, on, I think the ideological question is, gonna, is isn't gonna be as important as it seems, in part because we're already seeing kind of like a a democratic policy agenda coalesce and there really aren't that many distinctions between all the relevant candidates. Even someone like Andrew Cuomo, as he inches closer and closer to one in the national stage, is beginning to move himself to the left in strategic ways. Um, So I think it is gonna be a question of affect. Um, It's affect plus uh, being able to sell a level of sincerity. I do think I don't think the Bernie vote or the Bernie faction is going to be determinative in the election, but it's gonna be very important. um, And it will be a huge boost to whoever can capture it. And so I do think someone like McAuliffe, um, someone like Cuomo even, may may not work out in a Democratic primary just because the left will have some veto power and has no interest in someone like, either of them? I want to touch on Professor Jarvis's
5: specific question about this idea of some kind of broad-front coalition. Uh, the, the difficulty is, and, and you've no doubt heard this before, is that never-Trumpers are not very thick on the ground. Now, yeah. the kind of voter that you're thinking of, a kind of Rockefeller Republican voter, these were voters who might have voted for John Kerry in 2004 on the stem cell issue. Maybe they voted for Mitt Romney, but they kind of flip back and forth. Those are actual voters, and you know people overuse the term tribalism, so instead I'll talk about cultural membership. Cultural membership is extremely important. What are the prime issues for you? If you look at pro-life Democrats, uh, starting in the late 1980s, the ones who were men tended to drift to become uh, pro-choice Democrats. Uh, if you're looking at the ones who are women, they tend to become Republicans, because how important is that issue to your identity, to your sense of self? So I think that if you're looking at these kind of upper middle class voters, it really is about cultural membership, identity. What do I care about? I care about being a cosmopolitan person. There are some people, I'll call them liberal conservatives, not derisively, but you know, kind of liberal individualistic, they care about NATO, they care about free markets and free trade, well look, The parties have flipped on these issues. Democrats were not especially enthusiastic about NAFTA a few years ago. Now, Donald Trump doesn't like it. Suddenly, Democrats absolutely love NAFTA. They are incredibly fired up about NATO. You'll find a a crappy poll that says this, and maybe it's not as good as one of your polls, but I can point you to some crappy polls that (laughs) say that, right? You see this very sharp (laughs) shift on some of these issues. In crappy polls, uh, and I think that that is what's well, like very I telling. Said,
2: all you have to do is say it's Trump's So here's
5: policy. here's one possibility that I see going forward. I can imagine a circumstance in which Democrats do awfully well in 2018, and they do awfully well by picking off a lot of kind of moderate. Republicans, uh, liberal conservatives, as I call them, and the Republicans who will remain, uh, the ones who are kind of in the Freedom Caucus, these guys, they will be more populist. They will be more concerned about the threat posed by China. They will think, huh, In order to enforce our immigration laws, we need more state capacity. Gosh, government actually needs to be competent and strong to do these things. Gosh, if we're gonna protect the interests of our blue collar working class voters, hey, maybe we have to take on the Googles. Maybe we have to say to Apple, hey guys, know you're really cool and hip, know that you're threatening the states of Indiana and North Carolina because they're not marching to your drum, but by the way, you're parking all of your tax revenue in Ireland and we don't like it. That is a Republican party that I think is actually more likely to emerge Mm -hmm. after some of those voters you're describing, some of that sensibility becomes part of that bigger Democratic tent. But of course, then the Democratic tent, a victorious Democratic party is also a more diverse Democratic party that has a less cohesive message, right? right? So I think that if you're looking at the next decade of our politics, I think that that's gonna be the big interplay.
2: The other thing, I think the real answer to your question, honestly, I think it's distorting to look at um, the never-Trumpers and that kind because they are drifting to independence, for example, and your description is absolutely right. It's also true on the Republican side. There are only a couple of states now that have any pro-choice Republicans left. They've gone to independent or whatever. Um, So losing 2016, many reasons we lost 2016, but one of them is uh, the decline toward the end, particularly around the Comey letters of college-educated voters, particularly college-educated women. Well, they're back now in droves, and something could happen, but the, the, I think the more um, feasible way, strategic way to think about your question is less to figure out who did you vote for in the past than to figure out, okay, how are we going to hold college-educated women? Um, and I think that's the way to ask the question. The other thing I would say is, you know, we got to pick up a bunch of states, uh, for example, in Senate and House races, where people ticket split. We got to get Trump voters to ticket split. Uh, Sherrod so, Brown's a great example. Sherrod Brown, Tester, Camp, McCaskill. I mean, The whole crew, man. Uh, So we got to get a whole bunch of people. And that's why they're running ads when I'll work for anybody for Montana, and these are the things I agreed with Donald Trump on Montana, and these are the things I don't. And I'll stand up to anybody, and I'll work with anybody who's good for Montana.
6: Okay, we have time for one last question. I have a comment and a question. The comment is I am a little tired of the media and pundit comment that the Democrats don't have an economic message. Particularly as it relates to 2018, because these are local races, congressional races that we're trying to win. And I know in my district, and I'm pretty new here, but I've paid a lot of attention to our candidates running in the primary, uh, at least the one I support definitely has an economic message. Four, five, six issues she raises that are pertinent to our district. Now, I think that's true. It was true of Connor Lamb. I think it's it true of the Democrats in their districts. Enough of the comment. Uh, so I wish the media would leave us alone a little bit on that on that one and you all too Y'all said we don't have an economic message, but let's move on To what extent do you think? Uh, Nancy Pelosi Will be an anchor Preventing the Democrats in the swing districts from being able to succeed.
2: Well, I am a huge supporter of Nancy Pelosi Number one, so I want to be on record for that number two um, She will raise $77 a million, $100 million. So anybody else out there that can raise $77 million to $100 million for races? Okay, fine. Let's talk about a different leadership. No one else can do it. We need the money to compete. She has been very, very flexible. Connor Lamb uh, didn't say he would vote for her. She's been very, very flexible. But um, I think, honestly, I honestly believe that they will put a shitload of uh, Nancy Pelosi ads up against our candidates and I frankly believe that it will be a good day when Nancy Pelosi's in the ad and MS 13 isn't uh, so we had a lot more serious problems in these districts than Nancy Pelosi honestly
3: my my only answer is just I'm um, I'm just like not convinced like empirically that it matters either way that it's not clear to me that there's like very much evidence that Nancy Pelosi has anything but like the most marginal effect um, on a race. Like, it's, you know, it makes for good, I guess, like television messaging, but I, I don't know what you think about this, Amy, but I, I, as far as I can tell, the, the evidence isn't strong for, for the kind of direct is. correlation. Uh,
1: you know, Republicans like to use it because it is the one issue that helps to motivate their base, right? She is the polarizing, if Trump is motivating, Democrats than Pelosi motivates Republicans. She is a symbol, right? She's just that um, avatar that says liberal, right? Jamel's gonna run as a moderate, middle of the road Democrat, but if I put Nancy Pelosi in the ad, it, was, it will signal to you, no, he's really not. You can't trust what he's saying. Um, I agree with Jamel. I don't know that it is going to be this powerful message that's gonna be able to cut through all the other stuff that's going on, right? What I do think is significant, though, is the fact that you have a number of Democrats both who are currently in the conference and those who are running, it's not just Connor Lamb, but a number of Democrats who are coming out and explicitly saying, I'm not voting for her, or when asked, say, I I think we need new leadership, right, as a way to sort of not answer that question. But it is, um, if Democrats do take the majority, they're gonna do so with a class of candidates who are probably the least politically experienced that I've seen, it reminds me in some ways of like the Watergate baby class. They are coming in as newcomers to the process. They do not feel beholden to the structure that what the DCCC is or what the Nancy Pelosi's fundraising prowess is. They're running on a message of we need to shake things up. We need to change things up. Washington isn't working. The same people have been in power for too long. And so I think it's a it is a significant challenge Post-election for Nancy Pelosi, much more so than um, what it means for the midterm elections itself.
2: By the way, I think you're also going to have come in, though, the biggest number of women. And are we real? Are those women really going to, in the end, this the first woman speaker? I don't think so and we're gonna have the most, I mean, the interesting thing is, ironically, the two caucuses are gonna be the most liberal caucus we've seen in a long time, and the most right-wing caucus that we've seen in a long time, because you're right, we're gonna beat the moderates, the few that haven't retired, (laughs) we're gonna beat, and similarly on our side, we're electing, which I think is a great thing, we're electing very progressive candidates, so I don't, that caucus is gonna
1: be very liberal in the end. Thank you all for chumming up. Thank you to the panel.
0: Amy Walter provides weekly political analysis for PBS NewsHour. Jamel Bowie covers campaigns, elections, and national affairs for Slate. Raham Salam is a National Review Institute Policy Fellow. Mike Allen is the Chief White House Correspondent for Politico. Celinda Lake is president of Lake Research Partners and a pollster and political strategist for progressives. Their conversation was held June 25th in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.